All right, before we get started, some of you think it's cold outside. Of course, it's not as cold yet as it's going to be in the morning. But but I just thought I'd read a little bit of a text I've been getting from a pastor buddy up in Montana. Okay, and just it'll it'll warm you up a little bit, okay? So I first met Daryl back in 2016 when went to the Yad Vashem training in, in Jerusalem. And and Daryl and Greg Allen, who's a pastor in uh, Pennsylvania, and Ed Muska, who's a pastor in New Jersey, uh, were, were there. And these guys are all free grace, dispensational, and... Uh, and and then there was Tommy Ice and myself and of course Pam, and so we're all there and we figured out who the good guys were in the group, pretty quickly, and for I don't know how long five six years now maybe, um, we have had D- Daryl Nefsker who's in Montana and Greg and uh, and Ed and I are on a four way text. Well, Daryl. Uh, uh, I won't go back that far a couple of days ago when the big blizzard started blowing in and it was going to be down to minus 35 in Montana where he was with a wind chill of about minus 50. He then texted, I think this was yesterday morning, he said, well, our furnace quit again last night. The first text talked about how their furnace went out, and but their heater guy came and it was the control panel got that in. He said, our furnace quit again last night, 35 below with high winds, wind chill, blowing snow. We can't get out. The day before, they could get to the main road, but now they can't even get to the main road. Uh, he said, we can't get out, and our furnace guy is snowed in in North Dakota. We hunkered down last night as best we could, hats, gloves, warm coats, and piles of blankets. So far, our pipes have not burst. No travel today. We could use your prayers. Both of us are sick. Then he said later uh, that this morning, he said, our propane guy came over. He had just filled my propane two weeks ago. He cleaned the regulator that was iced over. But we're getting uh, propane into the house. Patty's canning room kitchen runs on propane, and, and it's lit. Um, problem was in the, also in the igniter again, which we just replaced three days ago. He said, the good news is that our propane guy had an electric heater he brought over. We're getting our house warmer again. And he says, propane guy and his family just moved in down the road from us. They're Seventh-day Adventists, and we've had them over a few times, slowly getting to know know them. They're five miles away. This is a nasty blizzard. Wind chill is minus 55. It will be this way until Friday evening, but the storm won't stop for till Saturday night. At least we're indoors, and we got a little heat coming. Then this afternoon, he says, another 36 hours till the storm abates. Still very cold in the house. How cold is it? It's so cold in the house that I had to put my soda in the refrigerator to warm it up so I could drink it. (laughs) Now that's cold. We're bundled up in layers in the living room with the oven going in the kitchen and the door open. Thanks for your prayers. So, now, you know, you're not cold, are you? You warmed up during that, didn't you? Having to put your soda in the refrigerator to warm up to drink it. Now that's, that's it. Okay. We have announcements. Uh, Jeff should be back 
I think it's uh, the 22nd, so they were finishing up yesterday, so he probably got back if his flight was coming. Um, reminder about Christmas morning, we'll have our regular 1030 church service. A little, It'll be a little different. We're having communion, but uh, not dra- drastically different. And just a reminder about uh, Chafer Spring registration coming up uh, on the January 2nd and our congregational meeting in in February. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll just have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and then um, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your goodness, for the forgiveness of sins, for the fact that Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and that we have redemption, the price is paid, reconciliation, we have peace with you, and propitiation that you are satisfied with his death on the cross, and that because of his resurrection, we have new life in him. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, coming to grips with the gospel, understanding uh, how the gospel was proclaimed, the good news was uh, proclaimed in the early church as we go through Acts, help us to understand these passages, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, we are in Philippians, and this is our third time to go through the gospel. What is the gospel? Now, most of you can probably do a pretty good job of expressing that, but it's it's surprising how many people can't get it right, and they use vocabulary that isn't biblical. And if you talk about biblical vocabulary, a lot of times they don't really understand it. They can't give you an accurate understanding of what it means to believe They don't understand the metaphors that the Holy Spirit uses to communicate uh, the the different aspects of faith, such as, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, receiving Christ as your Savior because it's a gift and you receive a gift of salvation. You have other passages where Jesus talks about uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which doesn't have anything to do with something literal. It is the picture of eating and drinking is receiving something. It's the same sort of uh, imagery or metaphor that you have there in John one twelve. 
So these things, and, and they've been fought over uh, in, in the history of Christianity uh, and trying to come to an understanding of them. So what I thought I would do this time as we talk about this in, in the context of what we're studying in, in, in Paul's epistle to the Philippians and the significance, because he talks about their fellowship in the gospel. And what does that mean? What is, what kind of language are we talking about here? And so, started off two lessons back with an introduction from John Whitmer's article where he, uh, or his, actually this was a periodical review where he said, I never realized stating what the gospel is could be so difficult until I read these three articles. And then he says, these guys never got around to actually telling you what the gospel was, but they spent a lot of time telling you what it wasn't. So that's where a lot of things are. So I talked about what the Bible teaches about the gospel, and I just want to review the, the last three points or so. And in the seventh point, what I'm emphasizing here is that whether there are those who hold to a lordship gospel, that's the term that is used to emphasize those who say that that the way you have assurance is to look at your life, and if you have uh, if you have the right kind of works, then that tells you you're saved. But you can't really be a hundred percent sure until you die because you might turn against Christ. In the meantime, that shows that your faith wasn't a saving faith. So that's lordship. And whether you're lordship, whether you're free grace, whether you're Lutheran, they're kind of lordshipy, but lordship really has to do with Calvinism, so they're similar. Um, I said the issue is what is the content of the gospel? What must we believe in order to have eternal life? And everybody's asking that question. The eighth point I made was that this word group uh, is used with only rare exceptions, that is the word group related to the gospel, evangelizo and evangelion, is only is used with only rare exceptions in the New Testament to include the life, the substitutionary payment for our sins, and the resurrection of Christ, as well as the implications of those events. I want to emphasize that, because I think Paul does legitimately use it in a broader sense, like I think that's what he's doing in Philippians, because when they're participating in his gospel ministry, they're participating in financially supporting him as he takes the gospel, but he's teaching people how to live afterwards, so there's a broader sense uh, to the gospel as well. And then the ninth point was that just as the sin problem is complex, I rewrote this because I read it today and I said that really didn't make sense. Uh, just as the sin problem is complex and has different facets, such as the violation of God's perfect righteousness, the sin penalty of spiritual death, our worthless righteousness, our position in Adam, the work of Christ on our behalf, also expresses the solution with various aspects of Christ uh, 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 of Christ's work, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, regeneration, uh, the reception of eternal life, redemption, justification, forgiveness. All of those are different facets. And when we sit down and t- or go over the gospel with somebody, we're going to maybe hit several of these. 
we may not hit several. Sometimes we don't have a lot of time to talk to people, and we may just emphasize one or the other. We find that in the examples in Acts. That's that's uh, what I'm focusing on, and asking the question: What seem to be the the things that are in common with these different different examples? So we're just looking at those and picking out those things. And then the tenth point had to do with the dispensational distinctions. Old Testament has the gospel. It's the same. It's faith in Christ, but it's faith in the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. We look back to to his completed work on the cross. And then the eleventh point was the focus. And I think Paul states the core the core of his gospel message. That doesn't mean it's the only thing you talk about. It's the core, though, and that is, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified because there's some within the uh, dispensational free grace camp who don't believe or the way they express it has been termed as a crossless gospel, and I think that's that's not right. But I've heard many of those men preach and teach, and when they give the gospel, they talk about everything. So, but, but theoretically, they would say, no, all you have to do is believe that Jesus can save you and you're saved. You don't have to know anything about the cross, resurrection, or anything else. So then I talked about what the Bible teaches about the gospel in the Old Testament. The word is used in the Greek. The same words are used to translate a Hebrew word, basar, and we find that significantly in messianic passages such as Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, where the Messiah is saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord, that would be the Father, has anointed me to evangelizo, to proclaim good tidings. And so this was quoted by Jesus when he got up to read the scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth, for which, and they, it made it very clear. He sits down after he read the, read the third verse, stopped in the middle of the verse and sat down, and it was clear that he was applying that to himself, and people took umbrage with that, took him out to a high cliff outside of Nazareth and wanted to stone him, throw him off the cliff and stone him, and he just slipped through the crowds. So last time we started this progression, working through Acts to see how how these words are used to see what is the content of this good news message that we find Peter and Philip and Paul uh, saying. What's the idea? So I started off with these key state gospel statements as backgrounds from John where the emphasis is on belief. And you've heard me say this many times, more than 95 times in the gospel of John, the issue is belief. Belief in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's belief in his person, that that Hebrew idiom of the name, praising the name of God, believing in the name of Jesus. That's not just believing that in the, a label. We think of names as labels. But in the Hebrew mindset, the name represented the essence, the all of the person, who they are. So believing in the name of Jesus is an idiom for believing he is who he claimed to be 
on the one hand, the eternal Son of God, and on the other hand, true humanity united in one person uh, together. Key verses, John three sixteen to 18. There are many others I could have gone to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, emphasizing Christ's sonship, which takes us back to uh, Psalm 2, where the Father declares the Messiah to be his Son. Uh, he is always his Son. The sonship of Christ is eternal. So that is emphasizing the deity of Christ that whoever believes in him, that is the key phrase. You find it all the way through John. You find it many other times in Acts and in the epistles. It's the Greek noun pistuo, and then the preposition eth, and then the pronoun auton for him. And many people have gotten into this sort of uh, sophomoric argument is if you don't believe in Jesus and only believe that Jesus. But the reality is a phrase like pistuo ace auton means, uh, can mean either in or that. They are, uh, they are the same. They are semantically the same. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him doesn't mention repentance. That word metanoia is not used anywhere in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is specifically said to have been written so that people will know that Jesus is the Christ and they'll believe in him. So he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already and because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And it's amazing how lordship guys will dismiss that argument as, well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, tell us why. You know, belly up to the bar and put the evidence on, on the table. But they can't do it. So as far as they're concerned, and, and it just amazes me reading some of these guys recently that they read repentance into all kinds of passages that isn't there, and it's always repenting from sin. They read that even when, you know, the text says something different. John 20, 30, and 31. Truly, Jesus did many other signs other than what? Other than the resurrection. Many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, that is, these signs are written. For the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, emphasizing his deity, and that believing or by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I want to emphasize these things because when we get into Acts, we're going to see the same kind of language used again and again. The object of belief is Jesus Christ. You're believing something about Jesus Christ. One thing that seems that is necessary is who he is. He's the son of God. He's not just a man. He's the God man. He is the son of God. Third, that his essence as the God man is emphasized by this phrase, his name. All right, so the question that comes up is, well, how well do you have to understand that? You have to be ha, understand it like somebody with a Ph.D. in theology understands it, or do you just 
understand it at a very, very elementary level. And I think that's where, where it is. You, you understand that. You're not just being presented with Jesus was a good man. He was just a man. Uh, that's not it. You have to understand he's somebody who can actually pay the penalty for sins because of his uh, perfection. Second thing we looked at last time is statements related to either the noun evangelium or the verb evangelizo are a subject. So the first thing we looked at was Acts 5. We went through that. We went through Acts 5.42, which is the first time we have uh, the verb uh, used in the book of Acts. Daily in the temple and in every house, they that is the disciples did not seek teaching and I have translated evangelizo as proclaiming the good news. Now, there are a lot of pastors who like the King James and New King James, which translates it preaching, but that's a bad translation. It's evangelizo. They're evangelizing. They're teaching and they're evangelizing. They're two different things. And this idea that somehow preaching is what we're supposed to be doing in the pulpit is not backed up by Scripture. We are to proclaim the gospel. And the other word that is used, is often translated preach, is the verb keruso, which predominantly has the gospel as its content. Teaching is what we find, didasco. The purpose of the pastor-teacher is what? Teacher. He's not the pastor-preacher. He's the pastor-teacher for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry in Ephesians 4.11. So, That's what the disciples were doing. They were teaching and proclaiming the good news about what? About Jesus Christ. He's the focal point of the gospel. Jesus as the Messiah. That's the same same thing John is saying in John 20, 30 and 31, believing in the name of Jesus, believing Jesus as as the Messiah. So we looked at the context of Acts 5.42. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord. My point there, he doesn't call them repentant or or penitents. He calls them believers because that's the issue is belief. In Acts 5.20, when they're being released from prison by an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord gives them direction and says, go, don't go home, don't leave town, don't head out of, out of Dodge because th- things are heating up for you here. Go stand right in the middle of the temple. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's what he's summarizing. He's saying that this whole message is about life. It's about eternal life. But that's not to the exclusion of understanding Christ died and paid the penalty for sins. Now, there are some in the... Uh, what I would, what has been called the crossless gospel, would say, see, it, you just have to tell them Jesus is offering life. That it, this is a summation. Look at the context to see what is being said. So in verse 21, we read, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. They didn't preach. They taught. But the high priest, those with him, with him came and called the council together, uh, with all the elders of the children of Israel sent to prison to have them brought out, and they can't find them. So this is this is what they're doing. Acts 5.30, uh, we see 
part, uh, Peter speaking, said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. What do you have there? Resurrection, crucifixion. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior. So there's three points he's made about Jesus. He, he was crucified, he was raised from the dead, and he was raised by God to the right, to his right hand in heavens. And the result is that repentance, the purpose for this was to give repentance to Israel. Now, we have to understand this word. It's metanoia. And there are so many different ways. I'm not going to get into this that we, we would, we could do a study of repentance for the next two months. And I'm even among people who hold dearly to the free grace gospel can come up with about six different definitions of metanoia. But the core idea, meta is after noia, nous, the mind. It has to do with a change of mind. And there's some who have said, um, one critic, uh, Grudem has said, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with changing the mind. But BDAG, the Greek lexicon, gives that as a first meaning, it says, change your mind. That's one of numerous sophomoric mistakes. This president of a seminary, highly respected in his systematic theology, gets translated into languages all over the world, and you just shake your head at this. He all of this, he, he talks about, Father, raised up Jesus, whom you crucified, murdered by hanging on a tree, and God exalted him to the right hand. Why? To provide repentance to Israel. But this is it has to be understood within the context of the Old Testament, as I keep saying, Deuteronomy 31 through 3. After God scatters the Jews to every corner of the world, every nation in the world, God says, and then when you turn back to me, that's the key, turning back to God. When you turn back to me, then I will restore you from all the nations in the earth. So we back to the key passage here. They are proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Messiah. So we see six elements that are expressed in this. The first is that the angel describes what they are communicating as the message of life. That's just a summary because we get eternal life. That's a result. Second thing is that they communicate the resurrection and ascension in 530 and 31. Uh, they indicate the purpose is repentance for Israel as part of it, not all of it, and they do not identify it as repentance from sin. That's read into every use of repentance. It's just amazing. Deuteronomy 31 through 3, turning to God. Fourth, forgiveness of sins is emphasized in Acts 531. That's important. They didn't emphasize regeneration. They didn't emphasize imputation. They didn't emphasize reconciliation. They emphasized another aspect, forgiveness of sin. But it's grounded on his death, that he whom they murdered by hanging on a tree. And last, they in Acts 5.42, they're proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Messiah. So who's the Messiah? 
You go back to those messianic passages, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, 1 through 3. He's the God-man. Now we're going to move to the next passage. So turn over a couple of passage, couple of pages to Acts 8. This is a fun chapter. A lot of people don't understand this chapter and really get mired into a, a, a lot of legalism and things like losing your salvation. They don't understand grace. They don't understand Christ paid the penalty for all sin. They don't understand that all you have to do is believe in Jesus as Savior and his death, burial, resurrection. You're saved. So what we have is Acts 7 is the death of Stephen. And what we read in um, uh, chapter 8 is the aftermath because there's a persecution that develops after they stone Stephen. Saul of Tarsus is at the forefront. We're told about him in verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house without a warrant and dragging off men and women, men and women, committing them to prison. Later, he says, he had many of them killed. That's why Paul thought of himself as the chief of all sinners, the worst of all sinners. So he is having all of these people arrested, taken from their families, tortured, killed. That's Saul. Then the scene shifts away from Jerusalem and Saul to the expansion of the gospel, going back to Acts 1.8, where you have Jesus telling them, take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So now it goes to Samaria. And we are told in verse 5, then Philip, who was one of those who was chosen along with Stephen uh, to help with the distribution of, um, of money, Philip is an evangelist, and here we read Philip went down, because you're going down from Jerusalem, even though he's going north to Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ. Now, the word here is Caruso. Philip is commonly referred to as Philip the Evangelist. That's the focal point of his ministry, as it's described in the Scripture. So Caruso here is used to talk about proclaiming Christ. Christ is the object of the gospel, the focal point of the gospel. And then in verse 6 we read, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. They responded to the gospel, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And what did that include? He cast out demons in verse 7. Um, healed the, those who are paralyzed. There's great joy in that city. Now we get to this interesting person called Simon. In the Middle Ages, they used his name to, uh, to identify a, the sin of trying to buy a church office. It's called simony. Uh, now, this is a certain man called Simon. He's an unbeliever. He previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed. Everybody pays attention to him. He's well-known. Everybody knows who Simon is. 
And they said, he's got a great power of God. Now, these are Samaritans. So before I go further, let's understand who the Samaritans are. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, which is Samaria. Sometimes it's called Ephraim because uh, Jeroboam I was was from the tribe of Ephraim. Sometimes it's just called the northern kingdom of Israel. Around uh, 670, 680, somewhere in there, um, the Assyrians decide to repopulate other parts of the empire by moving people, the Jews, from the northern kingdom and resettling them all over. That way they can't get together and, and start a revolt against the Assyrians. And they were doing the same thing in other places. They'd conquer a people, and then they'd scatter those people around. So they were bringing, they were taking a lot of Jews out of Samaria and scattering them around the Assyrian Empire. That's where you get the idea of the ten lost tribes. They're not lost. God knows where every one of them is. And then you have other, you know, Gentiles from all other parts of the Assyrian Empire being repopulated into the northern kingdom of Israel. So the Samaritans became a mixed race, and they had some sort of idea of some sort of Jewish heritage, but this, as they formulated their own religion, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. It's referred to as the Samaritan Pentateuch. To this day, there are still survivors of the Samaritans, and they have every year at Passover, they uh, sacrifice a lamb on Mount Gerizim. And you can look at some of Joel Kramer's videos, and he has some really good video related to the Samaritans on Mount, uh, on Mount Gerizim. So you've got to understand that background. As far as the Samaritans are concerned, they don't have a historic heritage prior to 722 in Judaism. Many of them were Gentiles and others mixed together. They only accept the first five books of the Bible. So they have, they have no understanding of anything from Joshua to Second Chronicles, the Jewish order of the books. Nothing in there. Nothing in the minor prophets, other prophets, that's, that's, they don't believe any of that. That's important for background here. So, these are the Samaritans. They, they got this sorcerer there, they think he's from God. And when, um, they heard Philip give the gospel, verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news, that's my translation, it's evangelizo, as he preached good news, and then it says about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. That's a really interesting verse. I came to that today, and I was looking at that, and I knew how I would sort of handle this, but I thought there may be a better way. I called up. Uh, first, I did a search on through Andy Wood's book on the kingdom. doesn't mention this verse. I called Tommy. Tommy said, well, they're, it, it, he's just teaching. They're teaching them about the kingdom of God, and it's not that... It, 
according to the rest of Acts, it's not that they're saying it's now. They're just teaching them about the future reign of Christ. And that's good. That's about what I would have said. And then I looked at a other book by another uh, guy who's on the board with pre-trib, Michael Vlock, and he get he deals with it in three places, not very satisfactorily. And as I'm do, thinking through that, I thought, why would they emphasize talking to the Samaritans about the kingdom of God? And all of a sudden, it hit me. They don't know anything about the kingdom of God because they don't have Joshua to Malachi in their Bible. They don't know anything about the Davidic covenant. They don't understand the uh, the promises of the new covenant. They don't understand the future messianic kingdom. And they need to understand all of that to truly understand who Jesus is as the Messiah. So it makes a lot of sense. Not only that, but in the Greek, as you know, if you have two words or two phrases and you want to link them together, you would use what is called the Granville Sharp rule, or sometimes that doesn't apply because it's a phrase or because it's plurals or something like that. But you still can show a close relationship by having an article at the beginning of the two things that governs both of them. Like you'd have an article noun, and, or, or, and then another noun. But if it's article noun or article phrase, conjunction and, and then article phrase, the writer's talking about these as two distinct subjects, two distinct topics. You've got, they have to understand some things about the future kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus came to offer, the kingdom that was rejected, and the kingdom that was postponed. And they have to understand that who Jesus is, the name of Jesus, the Messiah. They have to understand that. So that's what they're focusing on here. And they believed. Okay, so they, uh, uh, they're doing what, what the Gospel of John and other passages says, that the focus is they believed what uh, Philip proclaimed, the good news that he proclaimed, and they believed what he taught about the kingdom of God, and they believe what he taught about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And the result was that they were baptized, and then it says both men and women. That's an unusual phrase, but it's found twice. When was it found before in this chapter? Paul was putting believers into prison, both men and women. And here you have they're believing both men and women, 12 verses, about nine verses apart. So this is a, um, uh, this is a really important verse. The, uh, The background, as I said earlier, the Samaritans had a different Bible, so they needed to learn about the God's kingdom plan and its offer to the Jews, its rejection of the king, and its postponement. And they have to understand who Jesus is. The object of their belief is the message about the person of Jesus Christ. So all of that's very important. Now let's get over into some fun stuff, because this has to do with the sorcerer's sin. So look at verse 
uh, 14. I don't have it on the slide. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that that Samaria had received the word of God, isn't that interesting? That's that same language that you have in John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. So receiving the word of God is a synonym for belief. Oh, I skipped verse 13. Verse 13 is important. Verse 13 says, Then Simon himself, notice the emphasis, Simon himself, making sure that the reader understands. Now we're talking about Simon the sorcerer. Simon himself also believed. Same word, same language, used all the way through John, up to this point used a lot in Acts. He believed. And when he was baptized, what did he believe? He is one of those that believed what Philip preached in verse 12. That's the context. You can't say, well, Simon had a false belief. Simon believed just some sort of intellectual, historical thing. That, that The text doesn't allow that. He believed Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins. He's a believer. Simon also believed, and he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, if you take a look at that summary there, that shows that some time goes by. We're not talking about this happening one day and something else what comes up happens the next day. There's there's some time in between because what happens is in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem hear about this, they send Peter and John to them. Now, why are they doing that? At the very beginning in Acts 1.8, Jesus said he commissions them to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. Who shows up in each one of these? Peter preaches in Acts 2, Acts 3. Thousands, tens of thousands get saved. Peter was the one to whom Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Roman Catholic theology has any is right about Peter. He's not the head of the church but he was a re- representative of the apostles and because they all had that. They all had the keys to the kingdom. But Peter is present present each time, which shows that, that what happens with the descent of the Holy Spirit is the same for the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, the half-breeds, which is not a uh, that's not a uh, acceptable word today, and I like using unacceptable words now. Um, he is. He's half. They're they're made up of different races, and they were a racist people. Trust me. There's a lot of lot of racism there, as everywhere. That's not justifying it. That's talking about sinners. So. Peter and John come to the Samaritans, and then it's going to be Peter who goes to the. Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts 10, which we'll probably get to next week, to show that the church is unified. If one apostle had gone to one group, another apostle to another group, and another apostle to the third group, they'd form three churches, a Gentile church, a Samaritan church, and a Jewish church. But they're all brought into the body of Christ under the authority of Peter. 
That's very important. It's one church, and it's all united. We're one in Christ. That's the same thing we've been teaching in Ephesians 2, 12, and following all the way through Ephesians 4. So when they sent Peter and John, when they had come, they prayed for them that they, that is, they, Peter and John, prayed for them, the Samaritan believers, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They were saved, but this is transitional stuff, if you recall, our study in Acts. And so each time the Holy Spirit descends, it is under the prayer and authority of the apostles, showing that everybody gets it the same way from the same leadership. When they uh, came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had not fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, they, Peter and John, laid hands on them, the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. So some time has gone by, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, and Simon sees this and he gets jealous. That's because he's got a sin nature just like the rest of us. It doesn't mean he's not saved. It's that he hasn't grown any and he lets his sin nature take control. So when he saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he was he wanted that power. So he offered him money because that's from his background. That's what how you got things was you paid for it. So he tries to buy it. And uh, in verse 20, Peter says to him, your money perish with you. Now, the interesting thing word is, is that word perish. Perish is the Greek word apaleia. It's related to the noun that's used that in John, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever so ever believes in him, should not perish. Oh, these are related. That means he's, he's going to hell. No, it doesn't. The word perish occurs in various places uh, in the Scripture that has nothing to do with eternal condemnation. If we, I'm going to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is giving Timothy some wise counsel and, and a warning. Let me get there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with your spiritual growth, your spiritual life. For we brought nothing into this world and is certain we can carry nothing out except your spiritual maturity and your capacity for spiritual things. For we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Contrast, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. That doesn't mean they're not saved. They're just yielding to the temptation of sin. Those who desire to be rich, they fall into materialism and, and uh, they fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's not saying that they lose their salvation. Christ died for all those sins. Christ knew they were going to commit those sins from eternity past. He paid for all of them, paid in full. 
So there's a, an example of perdition, that same word apaleia used uh, to refer to just failing in your spiritual life and following the path of the fool and destroying your capacity for life and your your joy and everything else. So Peter said, your money perish with you. He doesn't say you perish, but your, oh yeah, he does with, with you. Your, you uh, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this manner, matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. Now, this is where we see something related to repent, related to sin. It's a believer. Believers are to turn from sin, to turn to, to obedience from God. Repent, therefore, or in other words, change your mind, change your life direction, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray if perhaps the, pray to God that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That doesn't mean he's not saved. That means he's like a lot of believers. He's just living in bondage to his sin nature again. He put himself back as a slave. That's why Paul said over in Romans 6 that, that don't give yourself to unrighteousness. Why go back under slavery to the sin nature? So Simon said, pray that, that uh, these things, he says, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And then the conclusion, verse 25, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord would be a better translate, when they testified and spoken, because the word there is laleo, which means to speak, not to preach. They returned to Jerusalem preaching, preaching the gospel, Evangelizo, proclaiming the good news would be a much better translation. Uh, proclaiming the good news, that is the gospel, to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, now let's skip down because Philip gets uh, taken to uh, south down to Gaza where he's going to give a witness to the Ethiopian. And we'll just look at a couple of verses as we go down there. The Ethiopian is reading through um, Isaiah 53. The Spirit brings Philip down there. I don't know how that happened, and directs him to uh, go to the chariot, talk to the Ethiopian, and they uh, have a conversation. And he shows him how the Scripture in Isaiah 53 applied to Christ. Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, proclaimed the good news of Jesus to him. That would be the better translation. Told him the good news about Jesus. So what's he telling him? Well, he's telling him that he is uh, the Lamb of God and how Isaiah 53 applies to him. And then verse 37 is a textual problem, which I'm not going to get into now, but it doesn't say what the King James says. If you believe with all your heart, he doesn't say that. That's not in the text. And what does the Ethiopian eunuch say? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's his response to the gospel. And so both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. 
So see, what Peter communicates to him is the gospel according to Isaiah 53, which talks about Christ um, making his people righteous, talks about the crucifixion, uh, talks about how uh, he will be laid in a grave. All of those are part of that Isaiah 53 passage. So it is briefly just summarized. He believes in the deity of Christ. That's an essential element of the gospel. And so verse um, 39 says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Verse 40, which is on the screen, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and passing through, he proclaimed the good news in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So there we find another, our other uses of evangelizo in Acts uh, 8.40. So what have we learned about the, the, it, what's involved in doing evangelism? It, it's involved in focusing on Jesus, who Jesus is as the God-man, who Jesus is as the sacrifice that is necessary to make people righteous. That comes out of Isaiah 53. And what, again, is necessary or is for to people to believe in the name of Jesus in who Jesus, who Jesus is. Now, the next usage comes together in a series of passages that I don't want to take, I want to do this all at one time. In Acts 10 and Acts 11, we have the episode where Peter goes to Cornelius and takes the gospel to Cornelius. The emphases are going to be the same. Then we're going to skip Acts 13, which is very important, but because you have part, you have two phases in the Cornelius episode. You have the episode that takes place in Acts 9 and Acts, excuse me, Acts 10, and then Acts 11 when uh, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. A lot of important things that are said there. Then you have the intervening chapter 12, and then in Acts 13, Peter and Barnabas and John Mark are going to go on the first missionary journey. Now, the reason that's important is because when we come to uh, when we come to Galatians, the issue at the first part of Galatians is very important for understanding what the gospel is. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul, Paul just goes right past his introduction, uh, states something about Jesus Christ in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That tells you an important aspect of what he's trying to communicate. In verses 6 through 10, he reams them out because they have depart, departed from the gospel. There's only one gospel. And anything else is a, is a, a, a perversion of it. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a, go- a different gospel, a gospel of a different kind. And that's what he says. It's a different gospel, heteros, 
like heterosexual. You have two different kinds. You have male and female. This is a different gospel, which is not another alas of the same kind. It's not just another way of presenting the gospel. It's a different gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. There we have that phrase. This is the gospel of the good news about Christ, and it can be the good news from Christ, but I think it's about Christ because he's the focal point of belief. Verse 8, but even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. How do we know what Paul preached to the Galatians? You go to Acts 13, and we are going to work through that because that gives us the gospel that he preached to the Galatians. So that'll be a preview of what's coming, and we'll get to that next Thursday night. All right? Father, thank you for this time that we have to get into the Scripture to understand what the gospel is, the key elements that people need to understand so that they can believe for eternal life, understanding who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, understanding the importance of his death, burial, and resurrection, and that he is the God-man. Father, we pray that we can understand these things and that they will uh, help us sharpen our thinking as we try to communicate the gospel to friends and family, co-workers, and those we run into. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.